Okay, good evening. Uh, tonight's scripture, we'll be reading uh, Exodus chapter 14. So if you could please follow along in your Bible or up on the screen. Exodus chapter 14. Then Moses, oh, excuse me, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of uh, Piharath between Midgal and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Harehoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bring in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would, give, would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea of the, on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord uh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind him. And the pillar of cloud moved uh, before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud on the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the, um, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course uh, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, none, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw that the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so if you guys were to take a guess, uh, what do you think, which dog breed bites more people each year than any other? What's that? All right, well, you know, way to build tension. Um, so, uh, again, you know, typically, you know, you're going to hear the big dogs first. So, like, Rottweilers or German Shepherds or whatnot. Uh, but the actual answer, uh, as Kenzie's helped us out with, it's uh, Chihuahuas. So, here's the thing. Uh, if you go and look at the data... Um, Chihuahuas, uh, as far as reported biting incidents, they come up pretty high, something like uh, somewhere in between number three and number four, depending who you're talking to. Uh, but there's a number of veterinarians that have kind of discussed this. And here's the difference. When you get bit by a Rottweiler or get bit by a Chihuahua, uh, the damage is going to be far more significant when the, the animal weighs 10 pounds or 110 pounds. And so they go from uh, reported bites alone, the fact that they're number three or four, depending who you're looking at, uh, they estimate that uh, the amount of fear and the amount of uh, chaos that these little 10-pound uh, animals cause is actually astounding. So in my own life, we got a story about a chihuahua bite. Uh, so here's kind of the setting. Here's how it goes. The year was 2009. Uh, Amy and I, we'd actually only been dating uh, for about a month at this point. Uh, we're dating long distance. I'm actually doing an internship in Virginia, and she's back in Missouri. Uh, but it's definitely that time where, you know, we're feeling each other out, we're feeling our families out, and definitely want to put our best foot forward and make a good impression. So my mom gets word and gets wind that uh, Amy is actually, you know, somewhat of an amateur photographer. Uh, she's done a lot of different wedding pictures and venues, and my mom was getting ready to throw a party. To which she said, oh, perfect. I'm going to get to know Amy more. I'm going to get Amy to take pictures at this party, and uh, it's going to be a win-win for all of us. So my mom, uh, well, I arrange it. Amy ends up going over to my parents' house and uh, knocks on the door, and my mom opens the door. 
Well, at this time, uh, my sister was actually living with my parents, and my sister had a little uh, 10-pound dog named Gizmo. I wish I had a picture of Gizmo because it would help seal the deal more. Uh, But Gizmo was the ugliest dog that you could ever possibly imagine. This is the first time that Amy's been over to my parents' house since our freshman year of college, so it's been many, many years. And the second the front door opens, Gizmo goes tearing out and bites Amy right in the calf. Now, because Gizmo is so small and so little, it's one of those things nobody actually saw that this happened. So you can imagine Amy's in quite a bit of pain. Gizmo actually bit so hard it drew blood. Uh, So she's trying to kind of hide this and cover it up. And do I mention this, that your dog just bit me? Do I not let it go? You know, I'm trying to get in good uh, with the family here. And so not only, you know, is she feeling the tension there, but then the rest of the evening, uh, she's actually terrified of Gizmo. She keeps looking around for this little 10-pound dog, and she's supposed to be taking pictures, and she's missing prime moments, all because of fear of a little 10-pound dog. Now, uh, the rest of that year, when eventually I moved back to Missouri, uh, this fear kept compounding upon itself to where every time Amy actually would come over, Gizmo would be there growling at her. Uh, Amy would be backing away as much as she could, and And they were both of these, uh, well, Gizmo and Amy at least, they both ended up being afraid of each other. You know, I think we could look at uh, these 10-pound dogs, we can look at chihuahuas, and we can ask ourselves the question, why do they bite more people each year than uh, any other dog that there is? When I think the reality of it, and I'm doing a little bit of personification here, But I think the reality of it, it comes down to fear. They're 10 pounds. They don't, they can't really defend themselves. Chihuahuas don't really serve all that much of a purpose. Uh, It's a rough existence to be a Chihuahua. So what do you have going for yourself? Well, you try to at least put up this uh, attitude. You try to put up this picture. I'm the toughest one around here and you should fear me. And at times it actually works. Now again, to a really small scale, I could look at uh, the relationship with my sister's dog and my wife, and I could say, see, they were both afraid of each other, and it escalated, and it escalated, and there was tension, and it got uncomfortable every time that we were around one another. But I think this story, uh, it's actually really fitting. I think this story is actually very analogous to the way fear works in the rest of our lives. You see, I think if we were to look at this idea of fear, and I think if we were to pull back the layers, I think that we would see so many of the struggles that we have, uh, whether it's us sinning against others, whether it's others sinning against us, some way, shape, or form, and I'm not going to say it's the only cause, but in some way, shape, or form, uh, I would go so far as to say fear is at play believe that each and every single one of us, in different ways, we struggle with fear. And I I think that fear takes a different shape for each of us. Uh, Perhaps we're afraid that somebody would know, you know, we're weak. Maybe we're not as strong as the person we present ourselves to be. For those of us that have children, I know that I, uh, in some ways, live in constant fear, wondering what my daughter is going uh, to grow up, who's the person she's going to be. Perhaps you are fearful that you will be seen as a failure. 
Uh, maybe that you don't know as much as the person next to you. How about this one? I think this one's huge in our culture, that I will never know or experience true love. Or finally, perhaps being rejected or unwanted. Again, I'm kind of trying to build a case here to say that we all struggle with fear in some way, shape, or form, and that in our relationships with one another, and let's go so far as to say in our relationship with God, I believe fear is affecting our relationships. So much of the sin we both practice and experience of life, I believe, has a fountain of fear feeding it, nourishing it, sustaining it, and causing it to grow. The people of God have a legacy of fear. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we could look almost all the way to the end of the story. But the people of God uh, struggle and make bad decisions because of the fear that is in their life. A story that I believe God wants us to read and learn from here, Exodus chapter 14. I believe there's a lesson uh, that for all of us when it comes to our fear. And I believe here's what God would want us to know. That if we fear God, then we have nothing to fear. If God is whom we fear, then we have nothing to fear. We're going to look at that uh, going through the Exodus story this evening by looking at these two points. We're going to look at the fear of man and the fear of God, because I believe we see both of those here uh, in the Exodus story. So this first point, the fear of man. Now, uh, I'm going to give us kind of a, a real quick meta-narrative. First time I've ever tried something like this. It's a story that, if you know the story of the, of the crossing of the Red Sea, I would bet many of us have heard this throughout a lot of our lives. So I was trying to think this week, how am I going to preach this? And I'm trying something I've never done before. I've kind of, I'm going to retell the story. So I took some time and I, I wrote it out, and you'll see kind of how this is going to develop. But I want to invite us to know, to imagine, to try to picture ourselves if we were present. What would it feel like if we were there in the Exodus story? Before we begin diving into the story, uh, we've been talking about fear, so I need to at least show you really quickly where we see this in the text. And it starts off right in the very beginning, verse 10. The Israelites know that the Egyptians are coming, and we are told that they very greatly fear them. It's only a few verses later, uh, Moses, the leader over the Israelites, speaks to them, and he gives them an instruction, fear not, do not fear. And it's this Hebrew word, yara. And for the most part, the Hebrew word yara has two different meanings. At least here in verse 10 and in verse 13, Moses is literally saying, do not be, that the people are, they are terrified of the Egyptians. And Moses is saying, do not be terrified of the Egyptians. Their story is our story. Let's jump into it. So imagine growing up and believing that you were in service to the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, imagine that you yourself and likely your family, your parents, your children if you had them, your siblings, 
You have been uh, the victims of systemic abuse, emotional, physical, and psychological, by these Egyptians, the most powerful nation in the world. Imagine that you believed, you fundamentally believed, because you were taught it every single day of your life. You believed that they were better, that they were superior to you in every way, and that your only purpose in life, the only joy, the only dignity you may ever experience, it will come by serving those who are better than you. Imagine you have a God who shows up, and he has lots of big claims. The Egyptians, they're not the most powerful people in the world. The Egyptians, they're not better than you. In fact, I've made every man, woman, and child after my own image. Therefore, you all have dignity. And you, the slaves to the Egyptians, you are my chosen people. You are special to me. I love you. This God shows up that was the God of your fathers that you haven't known, but he's making these bold claims about your identity, about how much you mean to him, and about what he's about to do on your behalf. In fact, he sends his servant Moses to come speak to you and say, hey, there's good news. God is going to free you. And you begin to hope. But then things kind of keep falling apart. You begin to think, hey, maybe Moses is onto something and maybe God is showing up. I know some of us have been praying for something like this for a while now, but it seems like every time Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh, things keep getting worse and worse. And, uh, you know, I want to trust this God because why wouldn't I? But it doesn't seem like he's actually all that he's cracked up to be. It doesn't seem that he's actually able to free us because every time that he says he will, it keeps failing again and again and again. Then imagine over the course of the next couple of weeks, a series of supernatural events have occurred that have enraged the Egyptians to such an extent they finally say, get out of our presence, get out of our sight, we want nothing to do with you ever again. And then imagine, as you're finally free, uh, leaving Egypt, Imagine the feelings of joy and celebration that you would be experiencing. Our whole lives, we've known nothing uh, but abuse. Our whole lives, we know nothing uh, of what it is to be slaves, and we are free at last. And as you're experiencing this joy and jubilation, you're singing to God, and you're worshiping Him, and your kids are doing this, and you're dancing, and you're merry, and you finally have this thought, this must be what it means to be human. This must be what I've been missing out my entire life. This is the way life is supposed to be. Imagine the dreaming that your heart would be doing. Perhaps I'll be able to actually provide a life better for my children than I ever could have dared, dreamed, or hoped for. Perhaps when I get out of bed in the morning, I don't need to be a slave to fear, but I could get out of bed and I could work because I want to, and I could work for my family to provide for them, not my slave masters who are going to be hard and cruel. Perhaps my children will never have to know pain and torment. Perhaps one day the Egyptians, they'll be like a bad dream. Yeah, painful upon first recollection, but a memory that's slowly fading. But as you think about the Egyptians, as you're experiencing this newfound freedom, 
Imagine the slow build of anxiety that would start in the pit of your stomach and begin to rise. Because now that you're thinking about the Egyptians, your mind can't help but start to go to worst-case scenarios. You know how powerful they are. You know their military arsenal. And you know their pride. And because you know how prideful they are, because you know how powerful they are, how self-indulgent they are, you know that there's no way they're actually going to be able to let this go. There's no way that the suffering they have endured by the slave nation, uh, there's no way that they can let both the slaves and the God of the slaves get the last word. And so you realize it's not a matter of if, but when the Egyptians will return you begin to fear. Your leader who's been speaking on behalf of God, uh, he's been leading you for a while now, and he leaves you to the edge of the sea. And although you yourself, you're not a military person, you haven't really fought in many battles, and you don't know a whole lot about uh, uh, strategy and tactics and what that looks like, you can't help but as you're camped at the edge of the sea to realize that you're in a vulnerable position. You see, in front of you, you can't see beyond the horizon anything more than waves and water. When you look left and right, you see that there are tall cliffs, and you know there's no escape. No escape to the east, there's no escape to the west. And you think to yourself, it's a subtle thought, but you can't get rid of it, you can't shake it. If they decided to attack now, we would be utterly defenseless. And as you're thinking this thought, at first, as you hear a sound, you think that you imagined it. It's just your imagination running wild because you've been so afraid and you're kind of dwelling on this and you shouldn't be doing that. Is that a low grumbling? You look off into the distance and you see dirt and dust begin to rise and you're kind of trying to convince yourself at this point, was it that windy today? But then before long, there's no denying it. The grumbling, it's not the sound of thunder. The dust rising, it's not caused by wind. Sure enough, the worst case scenario is coming to fruition. The Egyptians are coming, and there is literally nothing you can do. All the hopes and the dreams that you have allowed your heart to experience for the last couple days, they come crashing to the floor with pain and immediacy. You look around to your left and to your right, and you try to come up with a plan. You need to do something, anything, that would be helpful in this moment. But you realize the folly of the situation. There's nothing that can be done. You, your family, your people, you're trapped, and there's no way out. You look to your new so-called leader, Moses, and he appears to be calm, cool, and collected. Anger. Burning anger ignites in your heart. He claims to speak on behalf of God. He is said to follow him. He's led you to this point, and you trusted him. You trusted him. And now, what will this misplaced trust gain you? The death of everything that you hold dear. At least in Egypt, there was life, 
But following this man and his God has led you not only to your own death, but the death of your family, the death of your people. No legacy, no freedom, no anything. The time is running short, and you know the end is inevitable. Those awful Egyptians are coming, and they will have their revenge. But before they arrive, you, you have resolved yourself. As God is your witness, you will confront this false leader. He will know the wrong that he has done. And perhaps sometime, someplace, somewhere, there will be justice on behalf of you and your people. And so as you approach him, you can't help but be disgusted by the lack of concern over his face. In fact, as you get closer, you realize that he's on his knees, and if you didn't know any better, it looks as if he's praying, as if his prayers are what we need in this moment with the Egyptians racing toward us on their horses and their chariots, armed with the intent to kill. You step up to Moses and you begin screaming, how could you? At least in Egypt we had life, and where there's life we had hope. But you have led us here to die. Are you still secretly employed by the Egyptians? Did you know that they ran out of graves so you led us here to the wilderness where our bodies won't be a burden to them? How could you? And even now, look, they're coming down the corridor to kill us. For the love of the Lord, do something. And he turns to you, calm and collected as ever. And he says, do not fear. The audacity. Do not fear. Is he crazy? Look behind us. They're nearly here now. Do not fear. You demand a plan, an action step, something, anything that can be done to help the situation. And he replies again, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Do nothing, say nothing, do not be afraid, but I am so afraid. You see, so much of the confrontation that occurs between both Israel and Pharaoh, in some ways it's a battle of fear. Who are we going to fear? The Israelites, most of them, from the day that they were born, they were taught Pharaoh is to be feared above all else. Feared because he's cruel. Feared because uh, he's the one that has power to give you life or death. Feared because he could harm you. Feared because of what he could do to your children or your family. And then God shows up on the scene, and he has a completely different instruction. Do not fear Pharaoh, but fear me. There will be more on that in a minute. You see, the people of God, we've already said it before, they need to hear this instruction. Do not fear. And if we look at the history, frankly, of the Bible, there are there's so many times where people make great mistakes. They follow up with really, really bad behavior because of their fear. This is a little reductionist, but in some ways, we can say that Eve fell into temptation because she feared not knowing what God did. We could see that the people of God, they fear not looking and being like the other nations. So they said, no, we don't want God as king over us. We want a, a man. We want a king over us. 
We can see the people of God at the time uh, that Jesus was around. They feared having their traditions and their understanding of theology challenged to such an extent that they actually strike out and kill the Son of God. I could keep going, but at the very least, I think it's fair enough for us to conclude, I think it's fair enough for us to say that fear absolutely is a powerful motivator. And if fear left unchecked, if fear was able to run its course over our hearts and over our lives, it will be devastating. It's not healthy. It's not good, for the most part, most of the time. We're told uh, in verse 10, again, that the people of God, Yara, they feared the Egyptians, and Moses commands them, do not be afraid. And this is a lesson that they will hear again and again and again. As Abby mentioned in Scripture, uh, it is it, this, this command, do not be afraid, do not fear, fear not. Uh, whatever version of it we want to use, it's used time and time again. Based on the tools that I had at hand and, and the limited research I did, I found at least 129 times where this commandment is given. And I know as soon as we start bringing in synonyms and different ways to say it, the number goes up. The people of God are told that this is important to Him. We are not supposed to fear. We say it here a lot, but their story is our story. So when we look at these first half, the first 14 verses, which I just attempted to retell us uh, today, what do we learn? I'm so excited because on December 20th, uh, does anybody know where I'm going? There's a movie that's going to be released. It's Star Wars Episode Nine. Um, and my wife is so annoying because for the, or she's not annoying, I'm annoying her. Uh, I'm annoying to my wife because for a long time when I would be getting ready to come to worship on Sunday, I would listen to hymns and praise music to try to get my heart in a place where I'm ready to teach and instruct you. But for about the last month, uh, I've pulled up this mix on YouTube that is, uh, frankly, it's the Star Wars theme repeated over and over and over again. But it's to the episode 9 trailer, and rather than being in a, a major key, they switched it to a minor key, and it's beautiful and powerful and epic. And as this trailer is playing, uh, when it gets to some of the climax of the trailer, you hear the voice of Luke Skywalker, and he says this, Confronting fear is the destiny of the Jedi. It's your destiny. If we can ever gain wisdom from Star Wars or Luke Skywalker, we're going to do that. Uh, Star Wars aside, I think that is actually the first lesson that we learn here. We must confront our fear. We must name our fear. In this case, I believe Pharaoh actually was an idol for the people of God. They believed that he was more powerful than God, and even though their worship of him was motivated by fear— Nonetheless, they feared him. They revered him. They gave him their hearts. Wicked and cruel and wrong, although it was, they trusted in Pharaoh more than God up to this point. Not in a positive way, but a negative way. And so, too, in our own life. I've said it before, but I think if we look at the things we struggle with, 
whether it's sin that we keep going back to again and again and again, where we said, never again, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, whether it's the way that we treat our family, our friends, perhaps even our coworkers. I bet if we dug deep, if we asked, why do I feel this way? What is going on in my heart right now? I think someplace we would find that we're afraid of something. And so Story Presbyterian Church, I ask you, what are you afraid of? Who do you fear and why? Why do you fear these things? Do these things actually matter? You see, I think the, f- the first step in being able to overcome the things that we're afraid of, the first step to do not fear, we must be aware. We must know what we fear. So I think the first thing that we learn from the story is this. We must name and therefore confront the things in our lives, the places in our lives that we are afraid, the places that we fear man. That's the first thing I think we learn in the first half of this text. We must name our fear. Uh, Second point, we're going to discuss the fear of God. So here's the thing. we are given this command, but Abby's kind of already alluded to it. More often than not, when we're given this command, do not fear, it's also accompanied uh, either by um, a witness of what God is about to do. Uh, we even see, you know, do not be afraid, and then God says, you know, look what he is about to do to the Egyptians. Uh, more often than not, we see God's presence and his promise is backed up by this command. And we see right here in this text that there's an even better, there's an even more powerful motivator than fear. And it is closely related. It's so closely related, uh, the word is actually the exact same. And sometimes it's really, really hard for us to tell them apart. But if we can see the difference between fear, as in I'm afraid, I'm terrified, and fear, as in fear the Lord... I think if we could see the difference, we'll realize it changes everything. And so we're going to jump back into our story, and we're going to see what the difference looks like between fearing the Egyptians, fearing man, and what it looks like to fear God. Do nothing, say nothing, fear not, but I'm so afraid. Although Yahweh has shown up before, hasn't he? It's not like this is the first time that I've felt like I've been in, or should I say, we've been in an impossible situation. And Yahweh showed up, and he saved the day in Egypt, didn't he? Could he do it yet again? No sooner had I voiced this thought in my head that my heart began to hope that Moses raised his staff towards the sea. And a violent wind came howling and roaring in from the east, seemingly out of nowhere. At the same time, the fire and the cloud that had been leading us through the wilderness, it launched itself behind us. In ways that I can't even understand, the fire and the smoke created an impenetrable barrier between us and the Egyptians, stronger than any fortress or palace wall than even the Egyptians themselves could create. The wind continued to grow stronger. We couldn't hardly hear or understand each other, for thus was the power behind the terrible sound it made. But to our astonishment, we saw that the wind itself was forcing the sea to part around us. To our left 
and to our right, on dry ground, the cliffs loomed large. But as we looked forward, as we looked into the distance, even greater than the walls of earth were the walls of water that lied ahead. For the walls of water themselves told a story. They told a story of the power of God. As we stood and watched the sea part before our very eyes, we hardly had words to describe the awe we were experiencing and feeling. Sure, we saw incredible displays of power in Egypt, uh, power that showed us Yahweh is worthy of our worship as a God. But this was so much more. You see, in Egypt, the priests and the acolytes of Pharaoh, they were able to reduplicate some of the acts of Yahweh. Sure, to a lesser extent, but they continue to show us that they had power too, but not like this. Never before and never again will there be a display of power this great. Yahweh parted the sea, and salvation lies ahead. Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel, they quickly gathered us, and they led us to walk on the now dry land. It took time, but so great was the demonstration of power before us, there was almost no more room to fear. It may have been moments or it may have been days, but the next thing I knew, my family and my people, we were on the other side of the sea, delivered by the power of Yahweh. Now, at this point, it was obvious to us, uh, and as powerful and as mighty and as fierce as the Egyptians were, they simply were nothing compared to Yahweh. As we looked across the, bee, the, the sea, and we saw the barrier that Yahweh had placed between us and the Egyptians, when we saw it disappear, we saw the eyes of the Egyptians, and I couldn't help but be surprised. Because you see, in the eyes of the Egyptians was an emotion that I was intimately acquainted with. Fear. The Egyptians, the mightiest and fiercest nation and people in the world, were afraid. They had been confronted and defeated time and time again by the God of their slaves. In their eyes, they feared. They feared the repercussions of these last few weeks, and they feared their present reality. You see, no longer were they the most prosperous nation on earth. Yahweh had taken their wealth away from them. No longer did they have the slaves needed to support and rebuild their economy. Yahweh had taken that away from them. No longer did they have legacy and inheritance of firstborn children and the privilege that came with that. Because once again, Yahweh had taken that from them as well. You see, the only thing the Egyptians had left was pride and fear. Now, you would think that the great display of Yahweh's power, uh, you would think that they would be able to look at that and recognize that He alone was God. You think that they would be able to understand that they had made many mistakes, that they would desire to turn from their ways and worship Him with awe and reverence and do whatever it took to make things right. So great was the pride and the fear of the Egyptians that even after all of this, they revealed to us that they were the real slaves in the story. 
because they were afraid of losing power, Pharaoh and his army charged into the waters of the sea. Because they were afraid of how other nations would now view them, they charge into the waters of the sea. Because they were afraid of repenting and owning up to all the wrongs they had done, they charged into the waters of the sea. Because they feared man more than they feared God, they charge into the, into the waters of the sea. And in the waters of the sea, Pharaoh and his armies, full of pride, fear, and folly, would finally give Yahweh the glory and honor he was due. We looked and we beheld the terrible and awe-inspiring power of Yahweh. It was almost as if he drew the chaos right out of the Egyptians' hard hearts and made it tangible. The horses panicked. Chariots and riders alike were overthrown. Such chaos and confusion I have never witnessed to such a degree again. And then finally, in the midst of the chaos, Yahweh dealt the final blow and brought glory to his name. Fully and finally, the waters of the sea, which had just parted to bring salvation to us, closed to bring damnation to the Egyptians. The Egyptians, the fiercest, most powerful nation and army in the world, were no more. Yahweh had again acted. Yahweh had yet again redeemed. We saw this. We saw all of this. And in ways we couldn't have before uh, these terrible and beautiful events, we believed. We no longer needed to fear the Egyptians. We no longer needed to fear the future and where our provision would come from. We no longer needed to fear the other nations and what power and armies and wealth they had accumulated. We only had to fear Yahweh, for He alone is God and all the world is subject to Him. We saw, we feared, and we believed. You see again in verse 10, when the people of God look out on the Egyptians, they feared. It's the same Hebrew word that we see at the very end of the story here in verses 30 and 31. After these events, after Yahweh brings the sea crashing down on their enemies, the enemies of the people of God, we see uh, as they are reflecting on all of this, after they saw it, they changed who they would fear. They changed who they would revere. And rather than having uh, the terror and the loyalty that they gave to Pharaoh, now they have the respect, the reverence, and the awe, the way that uh, it's supposed to be. And they give their allegiance now to Yahweh. In a dictionary that, uh, written by a scholar in the Old Testament, that's all we need to know right now, but they describe this verb, yara, they describe it as this, the fear of Yahweh associated with worship is characterized by obedience to His decrees and His commandments. You see, once they saw this greatest display of Yahweh's power, at least at this time in redemptive history, once they saw it, they believed it, and they responded to Him by obeying Him. And just as we have seen before, uh, just as God has worked in the past, God continues to work uh, today. And so just as God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that His people may be redeemed, 
as we have already read today in our confession of sin. God, too, part of the waters of His wrath on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't obey fear, although He had every right to because He knew what He was about to experience on behalf of His people. But no, Jesus knowing who God is, Jesus revering God, fearing God more than man, more than Satan himself, Jesus experienced the full wrath of God that you and I may be redeemed. And Jesus calls us to remember this. See the way that he loves us. As the old hymn writer says, see from uh, the nails from his hands, from his feet, sorrow and love uh, flow mingled down. You see, when we remember the cross, when we can see the cross, the work that Jesus has done for us, well, frankly, it changes everything. Your fear, the things that you do fear in life, you're probably justified for a lot of it. You probably have some bad experiences that you have been taught. Yes, we should fear this situation, but nonetheless, the commandment of God remains true. The commandment of God remains standing. And I think the reason why God says this so much, and it's so important for us to understand this, is because here is the truth that we find here in Exodus 14. If we fear God, then ultimately we have nothing to fear. He holds the whole world in His hands. Your future, your destiny, your family, all of it belongs to God. All of it is subject to Him. And by His actions, we see He's not cruel, He's not vindictive, He's not mean, but He loves us and He loves you. May we revere Him, may we worship Him, may we see what He has done on our behalf, and may we believe that He is good. Let's pray.